Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. Y'all, these couple of weeks, just the world is such a mess between the anti-Asian violence that's happening every single day, the Derek Chauvin trial, and all of the other types of violence that we are experiencing. I just thought it was important that we return back to the basics. So I'm joined today by Scott Hall to talk essentially about why white men can't save us. This conversation is really important because as we pursue racial justice, there are lots of ways that we might revert to white centering or to assuming that the power structures that exist right now will be sufficient to save us from the systemic oppression that it seeks to uphold. And so we have this conversation in that spirit. So we talk less specifically theology and more history and culture and values in this conversation. I would think of this conversation as like a post that a lot of our other conversations about values hang on to. So it's gonna feel a little different in tone, but my hope is that it will tee up conversations about white identity development in the future and how those of us who are not white can figure out what it means to exist if we do it all in white spaces. So with that, enjoy this conversation with Scott Hall. So here we are back at it again. But Scott, thank you again so much for joining me again. It's been almost a year now since we started and launched um, with the first episode with you like in June of last year. So I'm really glad to have you back today. Thank you. Thank you, Brandy. It's great to be here. And uh, yeah, no one could have predicted this, um, but it's been wonderful for me to see your your influence develop and podcast grow. It's it's exciting. Yeah, it's really fun, and and it's a gift to get to do it. And so, I know that. Well, one, what it means to be you has probably changed a little bit in the last chunk of months. You've been on a sabbatical. You've been doing some other work for yourself and engaging with a lot of material. And so before we jump into the content today, I would love for you to describe a little bit about like, what does it mean to be you right now, Scott? Oh, yeah, that question, Brandy. You know, you, you, you it's funny. I, I think it's a wonderful question. At the same time, I feel like in our culture, it's a slight ambush of like, what's it mean to be me? Ah, existential <laughs> angst. Um, yes. <clears throat> I think I'm, I think from a year ago, I think I'm just further along the same journey of asking myself, what's my part to play in the world of making things right, uh, particularly as a heterosexual, cisgendered, white man in America? What's it mean for me to not feel like I'm supposed to fix everything because I'm limited and human, but to just ask the question, yeah, but what is my part to play in making things right? And I think I've just been able to give myself to that question for six months in uh, particularly for me, it's looked like a, a deep journey into the history of the church history of the concept of white people. And that's been a, a, a fruitful journey. I feel mm. so similar path, but just maybe a little, hopefully further along. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that absolutely makes sense. Uh, do you have like a, one or two things that you feel like are really sticking out from that journey for you as you've been giving yourself to that kind of learning more intentionally? Um, gosh, well, and I may, I might force your hand with what I share right now. Yes, there are several things. Um, probably the most significant was I picked this up from Dr. Willie Jennings and reading some of his works is the link between the his, the history of anti-Semitism in the Christian church and how that sort of paved the way for <clears throat> a racialized implementation of Christian faith in the United States context, which would be more, you know, in the initial founding with Native folks and Black folks. And he makes the link between those two things, which I had never really done much work on that. And uh, mm -hmm. I've kind of seen some troubling things in that regard. We've just recently done an episode on anti-Semitism, so we're starting to make some of those links, too. So that's interesting that that's been a key part of your learning, because I know that it's a place of massive unlearning for me, even this week, as I recognize the ways that some of the resources I've been putting out fall into these pitfalls of anti-Semitism. For sure. And I think that when things are foundationed on oppression in any form, we are all at risk in some way. And as we enter not enter, as we are in the midst of Holy Week, I think there's lots of ways that that kind of anti-Semitism and the limitations of Western Christianity end up on full display for all to see. And a year ago when you and I talked, it wasn't quite a year ago, but around a year ago when mm -hmm. you and I talked, we were talking about just the foundations of what is white theology. 
when we think about whiteness and these links between whiteness, white supremacy, and all these other forms of systemic oppression, what it points me to is just the inherent poison that is existing in or that exists in Western Christianity. That there are certain ways that Western Christianity has uniquely manifest a culture, an environment, a theology, a set of practices and politics that are unable to save us both salvifically, if we want to go into that kind of depth with what Jesus is up to in the world, but also just from the systems of oppression that we find ourselves participating in, existing in, or being affected by. And so I want to talk about the U.S. context specifically, because while we have people who listen from around the world, the way that the U.S. has formed and shaped and codified racism and the link between racism and Christianity has been exported globally through Mm -hmm. missions and through all kinds of other things. And so I would love to talk a little bit about that. And so can you just give us a little bit of framing and what you've been learning at, at this intersection of Christianity and nation, but also just why are we as racist as we are? And like, what do Christians have to do with that? Yeah, well, what a simple question to tackle, Brandy. Thank you for that. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> I have been thinking about this. I, I certainly, I have some perspective. I have a few few things that come to mind as you share that. To go back on Willie Jennings again for a moment, uh, he says something that just, it's so simple, and I just haven't been able to get away from it. He says that theology that's constructed from a European point of view in the midst of the transatlantic slave trade cannot be liberative for all peoples. So he says evangelical piety creates an understanding of morality that just it overlooks the, the ethics or lack of ethics associated with chattel slavery. And that's like the theology constructed from a European point of view during the transatlantic slave trade. You're talking about the late 15th century through the 1800s. So that's pretty much most of the present theology and certainly the theology that was operative in literally the founding of the United States of America as we know it. And so you know, I always appreciate, Brandy, some of your commentary on things like purity culture and Josh Harris and that stuff that you grew up with. And right away, that just makes me say, okay, this is giving a bit of a handle of why Christians are so upset about this one thing, with, with which is such a narrow slice, and yet is presented as the whole ethical dilemma for Christians um, that just feels it's... Just in the scope of looking at history, it's just embarrassingly sophomoric and puny compared to the scope of an ethical conversation about what's right in the world. So that's one huge thing that stands out. Well, I mean, I feel like case in point right now is the drama happening around Lil Nas X and his... Oh, the Satan shoes. And Montero. Yes, it's between like... Because right, Lil Nas X is this person who has been harmed by this thing that you're talking about, this moral shaping of a pseudo-Christian worldview that has existed forever, that takes individualistic moral centers and replaces ethics with those subjective morals, and then gets mad at someone like Lil Nas X when he says like, hey, y'all are inconsistent as shit. Like, y'all are so inconsistent and unable to engage with the fact that you've put me in a position to make the stuff I'm making, to think the things I'm thinking, to experience the oppression that I'm experiencing. And when I call you on that, all you can do is revert back to moralizing me rather than looking internally and saying, hey, maybe this is actually a a moment of reflection for us on why our Christianity, one, is so fragile that it can't handle a music video that is like Mm -hmm. so tongue in cheek as to be, to me, unoffensive and, and blame him for, like I've heard things as far as like, He's a he's creating a trap door to Satan for your kids. And I'm like, oh, what kind of Christianity or sense of moral centering has to go so far as to take this like young 20 something guy and say that he used Old Town Road to trap your kids into Satanism? Like what a low (laughs) sense of the gospel if that's the kind of conversation that needs to be had rather than the liberation and renewal of all things. Right. And Brandy, I think for me to put it on the lowest shelf, I would say it just reveals like we very few American Christians are taught to really understand what evil is. Hmm. Um, And that's the big jumping off point is this is so evil. 
with such reaction. And I, I think maybe not not coincidentally, right in the midst of the Derek Chauvin trial mm. is this outrage over this video, which, by the way, he's also showing like, hey, I know the scripture. I mean, he's fully doing a creation account. I, I'm not officially endorsing the video, but it's pretty creatively brilliant. Yes. Um, and yet, that, and that's the big thing that it just feels like, yeah, I, I'm with you 100%. So, and I think that's, so that's, you know, those, that theology constructed in the midst of that is going to obviously turn a blind eye toward these major forces of dehumanization mm-hmm. and murder and exploitation. And let's just go basic Christian. Like, there's just not a humility when Europe's deciding to carve up Africa and the rest of the world uh, for their own sort of ego posturing in building nation states. Like what about that has anything to do with Jesus? Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet there's an inability because of some of the theology we've inherited. That's a really difficult question to like, we should all have an easy answer for that question. And yet it's very hard sort of theologically to explain what's wrong with the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit, because you mentioned this construction of what is evil, and that we have a false or minimalistic or low bar sense of what evil is. And so I think for folks, it could be helpful, because I think this binary of like, good and evil is so prevalent in how we think about Mm -hmm. the foundations of faith, morality, what the cross means, salvation, all of those things are kind of foundation on what is evil and what is not. And the Christian backlash to everything that they consider, we think, I don't know how to talk about how Christian Christianity is so broken into sects now that it's just like hard to say we or us or whatever. But I still claim Christians <laughs> as my people, so I'm still trying to work that out. But I think that there's a way that there's this construction of evil that is so low bar. And so can you talk a little bit about some of the origins or like some of the, how, how do you understand the construction of evil in this Western white Christianity? I feel like not quite qualified to speak very deeply into that. But what I will say is this, as as I'm listening to you, Brandy, what jumps out at me is, um, and I'm going to sound like I'm nerding out, but I, as Brandy mentioned, I've been on sabbatical and doing a lot of reading. Um, maybe one of my favorite single lines from Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. He says, capitalism and racism are conjoined twins. And and he's he's actually speaking pretty expertly in terms of history because literally in the 15th century, you know, the rise of the Ottoman Empire was cutting off access to sugar and slaves that were coming from Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And so Portugal and Spain needed to start looking at, you know, looking west to try to find sugar and try to find slaves to manage the intensive labor of growing sugarcane and found themselves in, you know, Brazil and the New World and eventually the United States. And what I think about with that is is the connection of capitalism and racism. I think about um, American evangelicals' tendency to sort of venerate the free market and capitalism as like almost as a Christian value. No one's going to quite, I don't think people would quite say that, but yet if you're painted with the stripes of typical American Christianity, you are probably a lover of the free market. And I immediately go, Brandy, to Jesus's direct teachings about the worship of mammon and threatening that this is this ultimate thing that is risking your whole integrity as a person of God is the worship of money. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean? If if Christians worship the free market, which I don't think is too far of a stretch, to say that they've aligned themselves with capitalism, and then if Kendi's right that capitalism and racism are conjoined twins, and if you love one, you will come to love the other, I think that explains a lot of how the evil of racism in particular that Christians are sort of either blind to or complicit with at least uh, I think that's some of the origins of that kind of evil. Yeah, and what what that tells me is that in a Western worldview specifically, evil is not an objective thing. It is something that is more connected to constructed morals that then 
have systemic implications. And I think that it becomes a tautology, right? Like where uh, tautology is essentially like wherever you start in the logical in the logic, you'll end up in the same conclusion. So if I say black people mm-hmm. are bad tippers, I'm going to give black people bad service. They're going to tip me poorly. Therefore, black people are bad tippers. What it sounds like we're saying in some ways is that evil becomes defined and engaged outside of these systems of oppression and becomes like abstracted and moralized. The systems exist and confirm the things that we're saying about evil or about people like these people should be enslaved for this reason. Capitalism is good for this reason. And the logical circle doesn't actually allow us to step outside of it in any way because this it's, it's like how people are saying in this Derek Chauvin trial, well, it's about the law. And I'm like, but the law isn't moral. The law isn't objective. The law mm-hmm. is a constructed system. So if we say, well, the law says he's not guilty, therefore he's not guilty, therefore the law is good, and he is not guilty because the law is good. And so I think that we have to make sense of some of the tautologies that play out as we define evil and how I think there is a temptation for Christians to abstract our moralism so far out into the ether that we end up in the weeds of things rather than on the central things that you're talking about. So like we can say like in Lil Nas X example, like Lil Nas X is sending kids to Satan worship. And I'm like, I actually feel like capitalism and white supremacy look far more like what you're saying. Like Jesus would put this connection between capitalism and white supremacy together, right? Like I feel like that's like way more obvious to me than like a kind of creative queer person putting together a music video. <laughs> Absolutely, Brandy. And and that and that's why um there's this amazing um interview. You can access it through YouTube. Um of an old show, I had never heard of it. I mean, I'm kind of old, and I had still never heard of the Dick Caveat show. But he hosted James Baldwin in 1969, and I, I like transcribed that interview. Um, it was so inspiring to me. And James Baldwin says, and it, what you're saying is why he says I can't depend upon the American moral credit to save the people that I love. Mm. He says, for me, this has always been a violent country. It has never been a democracy. Mm. And so when you're talking about law, you're talking about, you know, sort of an ethical framework given by those in power. And then if we work in Willie Jennings, he's going to say that any any social relationships constructed in the United States are all operating on a continuum of master to slave. Mm -hmm. And people are putting themselves in one of those roles. So you have the descendants of slave masters and, and, you know, and just in case they're like, oh, but I'm a northerner, you know, white folks do that. It's like, you know, in the early founding of the nation, there were tons of slaves. I think one out of five residents of the state of New York were slaves. So it's all over the place. And so you have people conditioned to see themselves as master making laws where just they're obviously going to be a limited perspective. Um, So it's just, it starts to, it's like a house of cards, Brandy. You just pull out one little like, wait about this route. And then you see, oh my gosh, no wonder the whole thing is crumbling down. (laughs) Yes. And it's deeply disorienting for those of us who are trying to figure out what it means to reclaim our theology and really our Christianity from these oppressive systems and structures. And I think as you talk about this paradigm that Dr. Jennings gives on master to slave, I think that is pretty evident in how most pastoral church leadership models work, where there's someone who owns knowledge, who's giving it, who's dictating vision and direction, and is basically... Everyone's on the ship, but they're the one who's steering it. And those and, and congregants will go where the pastor goes, regardless of the immorality, dysfunction, and chaos of that leader. And I think we see this in every time like a megachurch pastor falls, and then everyone comes to rally behind him. I will say him. I don't see many women being the subject of these conversations. But they rally around around him. And I think that that maybe, to me, makes me wonder about the unique ways that the church or Christianity in the West is uniquely set up to hinder our ability to engage with racism and white supremacy well. Because I do think oh that gosh. like that frame that Jennings gives, gives an example of that. But I'm wondering if you could parse that out a little bit more. Like, why are we so bad at talking about race and racism? Why do we have to be in a position where we're reclaiming our theology from white supremacy for like 40 episodes? Like, why is that? <laughs> what a great question. Uh, let me, I'll just back up for a moment. As I'm listening to you, 
at that sort of plantation logic and that continuum from master to slave. I just I've I've been reading up on this whole Dave Ramsey, oh God, uh, his his corporate office, and there's these lawsuits of different just abusive treatment, and and this is a guy who's building his whole reputation as doing money God's way or something like that. So it's an overtly Christian context. And yet it's giving full permission for super abusive, controlling leadership. And it's making me think of even your whole series, Brandy, of looking at those different hallmarks of white supremacy. And so many of them are built into that plantation logic. And there's this idea, again, I'm leaning on Dr. Jennings here, is that actually in American culture in general and American evangelical culture, people are obstacles to institutional progress. Mm -hmm. They're either assets or obstacles. But either way, a human being has been reduced to a commodity. And if you stand in the way of the goals of the mission, you will be eliminated. You know, you'll be removed as opposed to listened to and dialogued with. I think that there are unique ways that because of the foundation that you've already talked about of racism and white supremacy and capitalism in the U.S., as we talk, I feel really aware that the church has not been, by and large, all that helpful in movements against racial injustice. I think mm-hmm. there we like to point to the exceptions to the rule, like we like to say, Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement and the black church is this this kind of engine of social change. And I think that is true. But I think to me, it feels a little bit like when we say like, not all white people. I think we try to do the inverse sometimes where we're like, all Christianity is like liberative and helpful. But it seems like in the US, especially right now, that the grand picture of what Christianity looks like as a whole has not been helpful in fighting against injustice especially racial injustice. And I guess I'm wondering why you think that is. Like, what makes the church such a hindrance rather than a help in engaging with racism and anti-racist work? I'll do my best. I I know I don't have a comprehensive understanding, but one thing that's really grabbed me, and I I alluded to this earlier, is is this, this comment that Jennings says that segregation is built into Western Christian understanding of the gospel because of the original segregation um, that came in the anti-Semitic sort of strain of thinking through the Christian church. And just for clarity on that and how deep the rabbit hole goes to quote Morpheus and date (laughs) myself, um, the church fathers, and you can find this in Google and Wikipedia, Many of the church fathers, and we're talking first and second century, were overtly anti-Semitic. And I, I have David de Leon to thank for helping me put the pieces together, you know, because right originally Rome, Roman Empire, we're talking, you know, first century, protected Jews as this ancient people. But then the first Christians were mostly Jewish, and they were being persecuted by Rome. And so some of those Jewish Christians would seek refuge in synagogues, but be rejected by Jews because they were sort of in tension. And the Jews are like, hey, I don't want you to bring that persecution our way. And so there was this antagonism really early in Christianity. Well, then you've got Ambrose of Milan, one of the church fathers, encouraging Catholics, which at the time we're talking Christians, there were only Catholic Christians, encouraging Catholics to enslave Jews. You've got Augustine saying Jews are specifically damned to hell. You've got a man I had never heard of till I was researching, St. John Chrysostom. He says that Jews are the ultimate evil fit to be slaughtered. This is in the first and second century. Hmm. And then you jump to the 15th century, and you've got Luther, or is it 16th? You've got Martin Luther. He writes a book called On the Jews and Their Lies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And says Jews are venomous beasts, vipers, disgusting scum, devils incarnate. And he calls for their permanent oppression and expulsion. He says we are at fault for not slaying them. And then you've got us in the, you know, 21st century. Of course, you pile on to Adolf Hitler 
And yet you look and go, well, you know what? Um, it's a real short line from Martin Luther to Adolf Hitler. And you can actually say, well, Hitler was not doing anything inconsistent with the origins of Protestant Christianity. Yes. And that by itself is so troubling that yes. that they're and, and maybe maybe you all grew up as better Christian context with better historical education than I did, but I never heard any of this stuff growing up. But if it's baked into the Christianity we have inherited, there's going to be major problems. And then Jennings has this metaphor of the house, and he uses this architectural example. And I love this. I'm not a student of architecture, but I've, as I've learned about it, it's right. Design, how spaces are designed, dictate how spaces are used and the culture of a house. Mm -hmm. Well, if, if Christianity in the United States has been built in a house of whiteness and white supremacy and sort of master-slave culture, you can... You can kick certain people out of the house and put new people in the house in charge. You've got Obama as president, but he's still running a white house. Um, cheesy pun, very intentional. Yikes. <laughs> so the culture of how a house is constructed, it dictates the culture of that house, the rules of that house, how that house is going to be used. And so... You know, you have this older generation, the civil rights era put us in this post-racial time. You've got, right, uh, Candace Owens, like, no, there's no <laughs> racism anymore. And it's like the fundamental design of how everything has been constructed that we're growing up in and living in in American culture is built in a certain way. And none of that is consistent with historic threads of racism in Western Christianity. Mm. That's pretty yes. troubling. It's deeply troubling. And I think that those that culture and those values are a lot of things that we're talking about in the podcast generally. But I think what you're pointing back to is that the foundations themselves aren't just rooted in modern US whiteness or white supremacy. They're rooted in the narratives that some of the people that people would call church heroes, or even go as far to like try to make saints established on the pretense of oppressing and marginalizing other human beings and their bodies. And so I feel the tension that you're saying, like, right, the, the line between Hitler and Martin Luther is a very short one. In the same way, the line between Donald Trump and your pastor might be a really mm -hmm. short line. And I think a lot of us don't know how to make sense of what looks like well-intentioned Christianity being rooted in, or at least complicit in, or maybe even like creative to the end of oppression in these kind of systems that we're seeing play out. And so I want to talk a little bit about the rules of this culture, because we're talking about this house design that Jennings talks about. Mm -hmm. What are some of those things? Like, what are some of the cultures and rules that feel like they prevent us from being able to, as Christians in the West, actually make racial justice a reality in our world? Hmm. Oh, what a great question. Um, honestly, Brandy, the first answer that comes to mind is that list that you let shape your first dozen podcasts or whatever, those, those the hallmarks or the culture of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. Um and and the one that immediately comes to mind is sort of um what is it the um it's something that's like non-confrontational or you can't raise objections publicly or something yeah like a I, like a right to comfort and it's like somewhere between a right to comfort and defensiveness yeah so so certainly that um you know if if we're willing to play with that concept that social relationships in the United States, unless they're intentionally divorcing themselves from it, exist on a continuum of master to slave. If that's true, it's going to abusively empower Christian leaders. And and I, I don't even remember where I read it somewhere, but it's like <clears throat> the dangers of sort of pastoral leadership. When a person sees themselves 
as being divinely anointed to look out and make decisions for your good, that that sets the stage for such horrendous abusive potential. Mm. Does it guarantee abuse? Of course not. But that's like, but it, it creates such an inappropriate um, hoarding of power in, in one central leader or hero that it almost is setting that individual up to become abusive unless they intentionally see that construct. And, and I think not even just hope to not play into it. I think they actually need to make like organizational decisions to remove themselves from that power. Yes. Like, like, like a single, you know, centralized leader making a decision to say, I will be collaborative. I will make it so that I cannot make any universal decision, but this will be processed in some kind of community. I think it's those types of steps that feel so essential because of this veneration of the single leader. It's just, that's why we have me too. That's why we have all it's because white men in America in general and Christian white pastors, especially are just set up to operate with an abusive level of power. Mm, yes. And that, that's just that's just a an operative normative culture that we live in. And I think I, I feel like there's hundreds of books out there of sort of white male pastor to white male pastor, how to keep yourself humble, blah, 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 <laughs> keeping your character. I feel like back in the day, ironically, Bill Hybels, it's like, you Ugh. know, who you are when no one's looking. And it's like, so who was looking when you were on that sailboat with that young? Yep. And and I and here's the deal. I think most of these men are sort of sincere yes. in their efforts to have good Christian intentions. Um, but I think they're inheriting a structure that fundamentally skews toward abuse. Well, and I think in that, because of individualism, the sincerity the sincerity of their intentions makes it so that we can never have the power conversation. Because someone can say, hey, I feel like you're wielding power in a weird way. And they may not say it that way. It might be like, hey, we had a conversation. I felt dehumanized in that. Or I felt mischaracterized. Or like the way you told a narrative wasn't the full story. But because there is this assumption of the sincerity of their intentions or the long-term goodness of their ministry or whatever, we don't actually require people with a ton of power. We actually, we essentially create a system where the people with the most amount of power are required to do the least amount of character work. And those people Mm. who are asking people in their congregations to do character work and formation or really like moral self-policing actually don't have to do that themselves because they're not reporting for the most part to anybody in a significant way other than god and it feels like when you when that becomes the frame god then is become becomes the tacit endorser of all things that a pastor does and especially if that pastor or leader is successful because that success is seen not as a effective use of oppressive systems toward church growth or missional growth or ideological indoctrination, but rather blessing from God, which then ties back into this kind of manifest destiny ideology that says like, well, we did the thing and it happened. So God blessed us, right? So I think part of the Mm -hmm. culture of this like house that we're talking about is this culture that says white men, even if we don't think this functionally, are blessed. And because they're blessed, they are above reproach. And because they're above above reproach, they are untouchable. And in that kind of system, no wonder we can't do shit around racial justice, because it always becomes about white (laughs) leaders or pastors' feelings about what they did, rather than the actual things that are happening in their community and in the world. There we go. Yeah. um, Good intentions are a hall pass through history. Mm. That's Ta-Nehisi Coates. Um, and that's such a classic white thing. And, and even to go back to the whole continuum of slave to master, and, and this is sort of a, a word for the white folks that are here listening to Brandy, um, in, in, in that last, particularly that last um, 
thing that you shared, white folks want to see, especially white leaders, a starting place of neutrality. Mm. Non-white people will tr- just it's neutral, and I can I, I'm going to build more trust. And the only thing that would be bad is if I mess up or say something wrong, then trust will be um, taken away. But I'm starting out neutral. Mm-hmm. And this is where that that feels so important is that insight from Jennings is, no, if you're a white leader, your starting point is the assumption is you are operating as a slave master unless you convince folks otherwise. That's a really different starting point. And I think that's just reality. I think for me, it was like a, a, a little like, um, ah, like angelic yeah. choir, like, oh, this makes so much sense is it's not starting neutral. We're not born into a neutral context. Nothing about this context has been neutral in the United States for people from different, you know, in racialized categories. And so it's not a neutral starting place. And so it's where white folks get into so much trouble is, but look at my good intentions. Can't you trust my intentions in the heart for this? I didn't mean to say it that way, or I didn't mean to treat you that way. Um, It's just deeply problematic. And then the Christian thing sort of gives a pass of like, well, God sees my heart. And so uh, I know that God sees my good intentions, which becomes an excuse for not taking responsibility for real choices and real damage and real pain caused. Well, yes. And because of post-Enlightenment worldviews, there is a significant gap for many pastors and church leaders who have highly visceral emotional responses to any kind of feedback, but because they have framed themselves and their worldview and theology as objective, can't actually Mm. receive feedback. And if part of anti-racism is white people receiving feedback, letting that shape them, and then changing systems based on that, then of course we are in all kinds of a mess when pastors in and of themselves don't even know what their feelings are, but knows that God trusts or like knows their heart. I'm like, homie, you don't even know your heart. You don't know what you feel about anything. (laughs) The toxic white male patriarchy that you are embedded in actually prevents you from having to have that kind of internal dialogue that would let you know what you think. And so you scapegoat on to Jesus saying that Jesus knows your heart when you have no sense of what your motivations, your sense of self is, how you relate to others and how you are perceived. And I think that that is deeply dangerous and plays out in that in that same framework that you're talking about. Absolutely, Brandy. I mean, I don't even think I I don't think I have anything to add to that. I think that's 100% accurate and deeply problematic. And maybe the only thing I would say is I guess as I'm listening is um in a weird way and and I <clears throat> I feel a little hesitant that to not be misheard in this. But I think what I hear you saying, and I'm just receiving it even as a white man and a white man in a role of leadership, is to a certain extent, you're kind of like, actually, it's not even your fault as much as you might want to think. You think you can, you know, oh, no, I'm sorry, and make excuses or apologies or whatever and get out of that hole. And what I hear you saying is there's a whole construct that a white male leader is starting from that's already setting them up to not have an appropriate view of themselves, Mm -hmm. which doesn't let us off the hook, but it helps us know there's a bigger thing that's conditioning me to have major flat sides and blind spots, certainly to myself. And then of course, to how I view the world and other people around me. So I think, I think what you just said, Brandy, you know, some will receive that defensively, but I think I receive it as an invitation to to say like, yeah, this is bigger than you. And so I need to put myself in other contexts if I'm going to have any hope of an accurate picture of my presence in the world and how I hold space with people around me. Yes. And I think it is also to say that I think there's this frame that we're that we're trying to use in progressive spaces that is like, no one knows better for you than you do. I actually don't know if that's mm. true for white men. Mm. Because I mm. think the things that 
white men are conditioned to know about themselves cannot be rectified just by like individual processing. Like it can't just be like, well, what's my father wound? Or like, what's my like sin issue? Mm -hmm. Or like, what's my relationship to sex and sexuality? It has to be, how has my entire worldview set me up, like you're saying, to exert unhealthy and abusive levels of power and control? And how have I done that? How do I own that? And how do I take that broader framework instead of an individualistic frame and let that shape who I become rather than simply saying, well, I'm working on it. Like, I'm just like, oh, I'm going man. to therapy. Because I'm like, yeah, it has to be that. But it also has to be, it, ugh, I'm going to use a really douchey phrase, but like an epistemological realigning. Like, you have to figure out how it <laughs> is my, how does my way of knowing as a white man prevent me from looking like Jesus and being helpful right. in any kind of racial justice conversation or work. And and Brandy, you just you just drilled the bedrock uh, on such a core truth, because you don't even have to to open the door of cross cultural interactions for what you said to be so true. That's a true dynamic of that's been a part of my own growth in my family. Am I judging my presence in the world based on my income or like kudos I get in my job? or whether I've written a book or not, or is it by how my kids really feel about me? How my wife really feels about how I treat her. For me, I did not even need to go around those three closest relationships in my life to see, oh my gosh, I have a really limited and very uh, um, conveniently benevolent view of myself. And and somehow I've been conditioned to tune out anything that doesn't fit that narrative. And let's be real, like, we just experienced a president who demonstrated this as almost a caricature of self-referential amazingness. Um, you know, I don't think it would take many interviews with you know, the, the trail of bodies over the last 50 years to say, hey, there might be some uh, dissenting opinion on that perspective. And, and so I just don't even think white men in the United States, we don't have to go very far to experience everything that you just said, Brandy. Um, and yet nothing in our culture makes us go on that journey mm. it, to talk about and even, you know, by the, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing that this is changing, but even the culture of a country to say that you have a therapist or that you're seeing a counselor yeah. um, is like, it's like you lose social capital in that. Oh, what's wrong with you? Versus it feels like if you're a white man in America, you probably need a pretty good reason for not having some therapy and people forcing you to look at who you really are. Because just there are not many social pressures calling us to do that. Oof. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so stuck on that phrase, conveniently benevolent, because I do feel like if that's the worldview that you're like, oh my gosh, I hold this conveniently benevolent worldview, and white men are largely the people who are shaping what public discourse around God looks like, then we are going to end up with a conveniently benevolent Christianity that also cannot receive feedback, that would rather be an apologetics defensive trash heap than actually look at ourselves, the consequences of our history, the oppression that we experience, that we've put onto others, that we let be existent in our midst. And so I think that there's just no neutrality to how we shape and form white men. And I know I was, we were talking about Western Christianity, but it really feels like this has become like why white men can't save us. <laughs> and I think that's true. And I think that I want to talk a little bit about the practicals of that as we engage with the Derek Chauvin trial and with Asian hate right now, because I am seeing white men, and I'm going to say men in general, being incredibly unhelpful in these moves toward racial justice. And so I'm wondering why you think or like what about this, what, we're, what we've been talking about makes anti-racist leadership either at minimum unhelpful and kind of annoying and at maximum maybe reinforcing and reinstituting white supremacy in various forms. Mm. 
you're asking me to give a pragmatic answer, like a real, like, what do you do with it? And, and I, I love that. I need that. I might need to, I might need to eke my way there out loud. Um, you know, as you're talking, Brandy, I, it's no mistake. I mean, I quoted Martin Luther earlier. Most of our theology in the West has been shaped by white men. And even me sharing a little bit about my own family, white men like me who live in an echo chamber. Um, and then, so, so then obviously there's going to be blindness, right? That's my favorite thing about Jesus is Jesus value for proximity. Jesus isn't leading anyone without becoming proximate to them. Cross-culturally, cross-gender, folks that were sort of outcasts and even sort of morally reprehensible. And it's from that proximity that he's teaching and leading. Well, what you know, then if you look at the origins of theology, what's the proximity of these men to, to women who are empowered to speak their real voices? What's the proximity to non-white people who were lower down in that racialized hierarchy? What's the proximity to the queer community? And so I feel like your proximity absolutely shapes your perspective and awareness. And so now to fast forward that, why are white men and white Christian men so bad at anti-racist leadership? Um, well, for one, it, there's all these layers that prevent proximity. And without proximity, we're just, we're, we're, we're doing that like, uh, what's it called? Like fire, aim, ready, or whatever. The opposite way of how you, you don't even know what your, your context is. You're not having a complete picture that you can speak into. Right. And you, you're so many of us who are white men are on this brand new cusp of coming into understanding what racism is and how pervasive white supremacy is. Well, there's going to be, a, it's going to be a really juvenile, two dimensional assessment of the problem. And so, therefore, it's a juvenile, simplistic solution that's offered to that problem. Um, I think that's the simplest way that I could put it. Uh, th the other thing I would add, Brandy, is you're making me think about even some of the historic heroes in the United States, and I think of like an Abraham Lincoln, the great emancipator. And yet <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, I, I just, I, I learned this recently, Abraham Lincoln in, I think a few years before emancipation, um, he met with black leaders in 1862, he met with black leaders in the United States and asked them to consider relocating to a place called Chiriqui. It's near modern-day Panama. So Lincoln, this great emancipator, he, want, he just thought it would really be better if we just weren't in the same space. Black mm -hmm. people, will you please all just leave and go to some new place? Yikes. And so... You just, he is a hero in American history. And yet his proximity, and, and uh, you know, as you might guess, those leaders were like, uh, no, we have lives here. We've been here for multiple generations. We're not just going to like get kicked out to some newly inhabited place that we don't understand. And so the, the distance from the problem, he's like, I know, here's an easy solution. Go away. And just that distance from how the issue of what it felt like to be a slave or an emancipated slave in the United States, he was so far away from that, that his solution and answer just was not helpful at all. Yes. And it's like, I don't see you. You don't see me. Like it feels like. Exactly. <laughs> like exactly. It's such like a juvenile approach to problem solving. And the church loves to do that. Like that is a cultural tenant of Western Christianity, which is make problems disappear, either through erasing people, erasing people's culture, or excommunicating or discarding every person who doesn't fit the, what I'm going to call like the moral aesthetic of what you want mm -hmm. your church to be. And mm -hmm. I think that for me, as I consider why Christians are often so unhelpful, especially white male Christian leaders are so unhelpful in anti-racist work, 
and I, again, I, I will say, because of patriarchy, I think men in general, because of their proximity to power, this plays out in men of color as well. I think that when a community of people, because of their leadership position or their perceived sense through culture and theology of closeness or proximity to God, even if they're not proximate to other people, and I think that's part of what you're saying mm -hmm. that, that feels like really hard mm -hmm. to me, is that white men can be can consider themselves to be proximate to God, but far from other people and assume that proximity mm -hmm. to God makes them good news to other people. And that's not true. But I think the point I'm trying to make is that I think that when people have a vested interest in maintaining power and hierarchy for their income, for their reputation, for their sense of self, and for their sense of God's mission in the world, they're almost never going to be helpful when a movement like anti-racism requires divesting from power, divesting mm. from control, and divesting from, and I think this is the hardest part for people, the moralizing narratives that they carry that motivate and animate everything else that they do. And because that is true, I think there's just so much white identity development work that has to happen mm -hmm. before white folks consider themselves to be helpful or useful. And I would say that we never get to consider ourselves helpful or useful until someone from a marginalized community or a group of people from a marginalized community tell us that we are. I don't think people are allies until marginalized people agree that they are. And so I think there's some sense of like, white people have gotten to define themselves, their culture, their theology, their proximity to God for centuries. And because that's the case, there are no, there are almost no feedback loops to actually resolve the issues that allow white folks to stay proximate to power and defend that at all costs. Absolutely. And, and, you know, you're describing a basic conflict of interest. There's a conflict of interest of, of white men in leadership to fully advocate for the empowerment, um, to, to, to give the mic to those further away from the center of power. That's some of my hope, Brandy, is even in this journey that I've been on, is that's really what I mean when I said very at the very beginning of our call today, my hope is to find what's my part to play mm. in that white people work, to understand what it means, to know that we are cherished by God and loved by God, to not try to do some self-hate, sacrificial martyrdom to seek justice because it won't be sustained anyway. Mm. Human instinct will be like, what the heck am I doing? Yeah, um, yeah. But to actually know that we're valued by Jesus, loved by God, made in the image of God, but also that we've been handed a, a, a false sort of bag of goods of, of a false sense of self-importance that puts us at the center, that's toxic for who we're supposed to be in the world in for even our own humility, for Christian character, for having a right sense of dependence upon God. And the scripture that I always come back to with that, that I think needs to be so core for white people and particularly white leaders and white male leaders is 1 Corinthians 12, 26. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. Mm -hmm. And if we could know and live by that and remove anything that would prevent that, that's going to go a long way to totally transforming this dynamic and, and, and not just trying to reverse it. It's where I have so much respect for Dr. Jennings is he's not calling for sort of a reversal of just white men need to just be under the heel of anyone and, and actually calling out. Actually, most folks of color aren't asking for that. They're just asking for a genuine sense of equity, um, which, you know, when, when privileged people feel get treated equally it feels like oppression i just think that's that goes a long way to seeing what it means to to be part of a collaborative and a sort of connected community to yes. to be called into communion as a diverse group of people who are all being kind of shaped by god into who they're supposed to be hmm. and i think that that scripture of when one part of the body suffers we all suffer that is rarely true for white American Christians. Mm. Yeah, and I think the shielding that white American Christians often have from that is a culturally erected defensiveness that that is it is like a I, I I use the metaphor of a moat really often. Like white Christians build a moat 
of like untouchability theologically, functionally, emotionally around their character. So they cannot be critiqued or engaged in ways that are actually helpful for the liberation of all other people. And it also mm. prevents non-white people from coming across and taking places of power to theologize themselves, to shape culture themselves. And what I think, even as we close, that feels necessary, and I think there's like a movement for this of like not listening to so many white men. And I'm like, the reason we are not listening to white men is not because white men are inherently bad. It's because white men are unreliable, unself-aware narrators of the Jesus story. They are unreliable, unself-aware narrators of their own lives. They are unreliable, unself-aware narrators of how their community perceives them unless they have done really specific work that I do not trust that most people have done. And I think that places like seminaries are hotbeds of training white men to continue to be power hoarding, power wielding, power exerting defenders of an oppressive Christian status quo. And so I think the reason that I say often like, Quit listening to white people is because I think that we need to have more reliable narrators of the stories that we tell about ourselves and about the divine if we are going to become free. I'm a white man and I approve this message. <laughs> <laughs> I have nothing more to say, Randy. Yes, yes, yes. And it's why I love being led by you. And I, and I think if I might just say this as we end, um, it's what I so love and appreciate about your leadership. You are stepping into the role that you're supposed to step into, and you're amplifying the voices that are supposed to be amplified. And yet in the midst of that, in no way are you ever dehumanizing. And you know that sometimes my voice needs to be put to the sideline, but not in a way where you ever stop treating me as fully human and mm -hmm. not to mention a friend. And it's just, it's a beautiful hallmark of your leadership because it's not easy to do. There's a lot of things to be angry about. There's, there's a lot of real pain that's been caused. There's a lot of folks that get triggered by another white man speaking. That's real stuff. And it's not an easy thing to just, oh, whatever. I understand the anger and antagonism um, that comes. And at the same time, there's this beautiful way that you model and live and integrity of really treating every human being as a precious person made in the image of God. And I, I feel that and I'm grateful, Brandy. And that has been some of the hardest work of the last half decade of my life is figuring out how to hold and deeply feel and engage with pain, anger, oppression, and violence, and to not move that toward dehumanizing postures that I'm critiquing in the ways that they've impacted me. And so that is, that is the hope of a lot of this work is that we would all more deeply find our humanity, that white people would find the freedom of getting to be fully human instead of trying to be God, and that communities of color, BIPOC folks would find the freedom to be fully ourselves as whiteness gets decentered. And so I think that's really important. And one of the things I appreciate about you, Scott, and that I just want to like let the people know is that pretty soon, um, Patreon folks, Scott and I are going to do a workshop on white identity development. So if you're like, what the hell do we do? Or like, how do I talk to white people that I'm leading or white people who are in my community or my leaders about this stuff? We're going to actually do some more practical like workshopping and training on how do you start taking steps outside of this house that is designed to maintain white power and privilege. And so even as we move toward Easter, where we look at Jesus decentering all power and literally dying, I think there's a model for white folks in like giving up power and control and privilege and doing the identity work that is necessary to live in the kind of world that we would espouse Jesus wanting us to live in, though never setting up for ourselves because we're just not framed to do that. And so we'll be doing that in the next couple of weeks. So if you want to do that, you can join us on Patreon and we'll see some of y'all there. Anything else you want to plug, Scott? No, that's great. I feel excited about that. And and uh, yeah, if you're hungry for some of what Brandy's sharing about, we got you. We've got some good stuff that will might not fix everything, but it'll point you in the right direction. So, no, I'm really grateful. Thank you, Brandy. It's always a pleasure. Yes. Thanks, Scott. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. During Holy Week, y'all, I just encourage you to be gentle and kind with yourselves. A lot of the rhetoric that we're experiencing in culture at large and in the church can be super triggering. So please care for each other well. 
I also wanted to reiterate that for patrons, we're going to have a workshop coming up in the next two weeks with Scott Hall to talk specifically about white identity development. What are the stages of it? How do we actually disciple white people well? And for those of you that are white, how do you take some agency in your own development such that we could end systemic oppression together, specifically in the church. So if you're interested in that, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash brandyneco. Just $5 a month gets you an extra podcast every month starting this month, and that's live now, as well as a Discord that's launching later this week, and extra workshops like this that we're going to be doing periodically throughout our time together. Y'all, thank you so much for all of the support that you give. This podcast is such a dream for me in so many ways, and I'm learning so much. And so thank you for being on a learning journey with me, because as we have opportunities to learn and engage, I think we can actually do a little bit better together. 